right. Well, it's good to see y'all this morning. We are starting a little mini series today. It's a two week series. Um, it's just simply titled Our Heart. Um, for those of you that have ever kind of gone on our little blog website and checked us out, um, you know, we were trying to figure out how do you start communicating with people that you barely know or you've never even met when you're preparing to move to a brand new place. And so we spent countless evenings in our living room at our home with Crystal and Alex, my wife, Amy, uh, Rob and Sarah, and we just pray and dream. And it's like, Lord, how do we verbalize the things that are in our heart that we feel like you're calling us to do when we move to Knoxville? And so as best we could, we tried to kind of put that story together and put it on a little blog and share our background a little bit and share kind of what we believe and what our heart is. And so um, over the next two weeks, I just want to take some time and talk about kind of five key things that we identified that our church is just going to be about. These are things that we're going to be about. And then two weeks from today, um, y'all have heard me mention my buddy Jimmy Harris. Pastor Jimmy's going to come while I'm uh, in Florida on vacation. I'm, I'm excited about vacation, I'm not going to lie, but I'm also disappointed that I'm not going to hear my friend. But he's going to come and kick off a discipleship series for us. And so he's going to hit kind of four key things we're going to be covering. And then in the weeks after that, I'll unpack each of those four things he talks about. And then we're going to launch home groups. So that's kind of where we're going. So I just thought this would be a good opportunity, this window of time, the next two Sundays, to unpack why we do what we do. And so let's just jump into this this morning. First of all, our kind of purpose or mission statement or whatever you want to call it is equipping people to be passionate disciples of Jesus Christ equipping people to be passionate disciples of Jesus Christ. And so there's really five key things in there. Um, the first thing is Jesus. We want this to be all about him. There's a lot of awesome things about spending time with people and being in community. And you know what? You can fulfill community in a lot of ways. Pretty soon you can show up at a stadium with thousands of people and cheer and get excited over 22 people on a field slamming into each other. Like that's a way you can form community. And many of us here in Knoxville will be doing that in a sea of orange very soon. Um, there's a lot of ways to find community. Our, our resident Alabama fan is super excited about this analogy this morning. We got a, we got a couple of Roll Tide fans in the house, don't we? Yeah. Um, sorry, I don't want to start a civil war here. Let's move on quickly. Um, but there's a lot of ways to form community. But, but we believe that Jesus has the answer to healthy community. He puts us in families. He calls us to be a part of a body, of a family. And so it's all about Jesus. That is why we're here, to talk about him, to celebrate him, to be in relationship with him. If you ever hear anything from me that just sounds like fulfilling a religious duty, you can go ahead and get up and just start walking out the door. We are not here to fulfill a religious purpose. We are here to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's why he came. It's what we were made for. And so we're going to be about Jesus. And if we're in relationship with Jesus, some cool things are going to happen in our lives as a byproduct. He's going to begin to change us and to transform us. And he's going to begin to help us see how we can relate with other people in our lives. And so that, that comes to our second purpose, why we're here. We're here to make much of Jesus and be in relationship with him and tell other people about him. And we're here to be about people. We're here to be about people. Um, listen, I want things to look as nice as they can look. You know, I want us to have a facility that works well for what we're here to do. Um, we'll do classes and things at times, but we are never going to put program 
or, or details or structure in front of people. The only structure we're ever going to figure out is structure that helps us connect with people. A living room suits me perfectly fine. We loved that season. We had to leave it because it wasn't big enough anymore. So now we're hanging out in a school cafeteria. Um, there will be times where we make practical decisions about space and location and programs. But, but ultimately, we are here for people. We're here to know each other and to love each other, the people that are in this room and folks that we haven't met yet. And really what we're going to talk a lot about this morning is about this category of people because I believe it reflects Jesus' heart. We said we're about him. And it also reflects the kinds of people that we are and the kinds of people that we are called to love. And so we're just going to begin to go through this this morning by looking at three different folks that Jesus called to follow him. And, you know, because it's a sermon and I need to come up with something memorable, we're going to define these people with three, in kind of three different categories. We're going to talk about sinners, we're going to talk about skeptics, and we're going to talk about saints. Sinners, skeptics, and saints. So our first story this morning is found in Luke chapter 5. And we're going to meet this character who's kind of in the sinner category. Um, he's probably more commonly known to you as Matthew. He wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He's one of the disciples of Jesus. Um, he's also called Levi in, in the Scripture, in the Gospels. And so in Luke's Gospel, it records the first time that Jesus comes up. He may have met him before, but it's the first time that we see Jesus and Matthew or Levi interact in the Scripture. And so Jesus comes up to this guy and he strikes up a conversation. I, I think we're going to see maybe some surprising things. And so in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27, Jesus is out. And it says, after this, he, that's Jesus, went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now for us sitting here, you know, we hear tax collector and you know, it might not create the, the most loving thoughts in our minds if we kind of consider the IRS and somebody we might have to deal with that's, especially if they're collecting back taxes or something. We might not have warm, fuzzy feelings about tax collectors. Am, am I offending any IRS workers in the room? I hope not. But listen, this is like a whole other level in their culture. In their culture, in their day and age, when they hear tax collector, all they see is a big equal sign that means sinner or outcast. It was very common in that day for tax collectors, number one, to overcharge them. In fact, that was how the tax collector made money, because here's how it worked. These aren't tax collectors taxing their own people and paying their own government. The Romans are ruling over the Jews. So, so Levi is a Jewish guy who's collecting taxes for the Romans. And then the only way he makes money is he collects the taxes the Romans say, you're going to owe us, and then he charges additionally to pay his own bills. So he's, there's like a double-edged sword working against this guy. His own people already are annoyed that he's working for the Roman government and collecting their taxes to pay the Roman government. And then on top of that, they're fully aware that anything this guy makes is just over and above what they actually owe. So this, this is like, he is an outcast. He's a sinner. And if you don't believe me, a few verses down, we're going to see very clearly what they think of guys like Levi. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, and the common folks of the day could not stand tax collectors. But what's interesting is what Jesus sees. See, everybody else in the culture just sees sinner, outcast, um, rejected, 
Jesus looks and he says, that's one of my guys. That's somebody I'm interested in. All he sees is invited. When he looks at Matthew, when he looks at Levi, he says, you're invited. And so he encounters this guy and he says, follow me. Verse 28, and leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. I love this. Listen, if there's one thing that is beautiful about a sinner meeting Jesus, it's the contrast that happens when they look at their own life and how aware they are of their their failings and their shortcomings and all the things that just aren't working in their life. And they encounter Jesus and they hear his warm invitation and all of a sudden look around going, hey, I'm kind of willing to like leave all this to follow you. That sounds great. What you're offering is inviting it's enticing. It sounds wonderful. I want a part of that. And, and I just have to wonder if we look much like that anymore. If you're in this room this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, if you were to encounter someone that would be considered an outcast in our society, someone who would be labeled a sinner, in fact, someone who's even kind of aware of their own shortcomings, they recognize they're an outcast. I just wonder, are we the type of people that would be appealing enough that they would feel invited by us? That, that our lives and our love for them is so compelling that they would be able to look at us and say, I want that. I'm actually willing to look at where I'm living and say, I'm sick of this. I want some of that. And that's what Levi did. This one brief encounter with Jesus and he saw something so inviting and so appealing that he leaves everything. Verse 29, check this out. And then Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. You know, there's, there's something about Jesus that not only was inviting to a sinner, but sinners felt like Jesus was the kind of guy they could say, hey, would you come hang out with me? And he would show up. And guess what? Jesus did. In fact, this isn't an isolated incident. One of the things that the religious leaders of the day had against Jesus is over and over and over again, they just kept finding him hanging out with sinners and they couldn't wrap their head around it. Wait a minute, you're this, this brilliant teacher and you, you seem to know something about God and you're doing miraculous things and yet we just keep seeing you hanging out with sinners. What's going on with that? And yet Jesus had this relationship with society's outcasts where they felt welcomed by him and they were willing to invite him in and he would show up. And so Jesus would come and be a part of their lives. And so here he is hanging with Levi. And then, you know, I just also can't help but think sinners that get saved, they just make the best evangelists, don't they? I mean, folks that have just been radically saved. Do you know anybody in your life who was just like, they were in the category of lost as a ball in high weeds? I mean, my, my pastor back home in Franklin was like that. I mean, in the drugs, totally running from Jesus, just out there. And he got radically saved. And I mean, talk about an evangelist. He'll speak to anybody, anytime about Jesus everywhere. There's something that happens when you just radically have this life transformation where you just can't help but start inviting all the other people that used to be where you were. And I love that that's the first thing we see Levi doing. Jesus called him and what does he do? He calls all those buddies up. Hey, come on over. We're having a party. You got to meet this guy. And so he loads up his house with all these other tax collectors and sinners. 
And so verse 30, you know, so far the story just sounds awesome, right? Like it's inviting, it's encouraging. People are coming and meeting Jesus. He's available to them. And then look who shows up. Verse 30, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. Grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 31, and Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I want to live my life in such a way where I'm, I'm not even just willing to be around sinners. I'm inviting them in. I'm putting, I'm putting myself in a place where they're inviting me into their life. They would feel comfortable doing that where I can be around them and with them. And what's so incredible about Jesus, he doesn't compromise. That's what the Pharisees couldn't wrap their head around. To them, it was like, you have to get here and then you can be around us. If you're down here, sorry, you're outside. But if you can come to here, then you can be with us. And they felt like they were holding the the line of what was right and holy and good. But what Jesus did is he said, I'll come meet you right here where you are and then I'm going to call you up. I'm going to invite you up. I'll bring you along with me. And he didn't just demand jump from here to here. If we were to look at the course of the life that he lived on this earth and the patience that he showed with his disciples as they stumbled, as they failed, as they struggled, and he just continued to walk through life with these guys who were sinners that were growing and that were changing. Jesus had that level of patience. But he doesn't compromise. Look at the very end of verse 32 there. He simply says to them, yeah, I've not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners to repentance. He loves sinners enough not to leave them where they are. He invites them to change. He gives them the power to change, the ability to change. He says, hey, you're this way. Great. I love you. I see you right where you are. I'll come meet you there. I'll come spend time with you there. Now, let me show you something incredible that's available to you. There is a new life in me if you will repent and change. So come on. It's the first group of people that we see Jesus hanging out with, sinners. They were welcomed by him and he invited them in. And as a church, that needs to be part of our heart. You know, if we're only comfortable with a certain look of a person that would walk in wearing a certain type of clothing, carrying themselves a certain kind of way, already knowing some good Christian lingo so they can kind of blend in, we're missing the boat. I want drug addicts to walk in the door. I do. Guess what? They're not going to show up without being invited. They might occasionally at some point see a sign somewhere and come stumbling into this school. But the reality is they're not going to come unless we bring them. And so I want to be the kind of church, I want to be the kind of guy that is inviting and welcoming the type of folks who are outcasts in our society. So let's invite them in. Jesus reached out to sinners. Secondly, Jesus reached out to skeptics. We're going to take a look at this guy named Nathaniel. Nathaniel's another guy who, who followed Jesus, was a disciple of Jesus. And we're going to see the moment when he meets him right here in John chapter 1. And so in John chapter 1, verse 45, Jesus has kind of already showed up to town and He started um, connecting with some guys. He's met Andrew and Peter at this point. And then their friend Philip has now met Jesus. 
And so Philip gets excited. He's kind of similar t- to Levi. He wasn't, um, he wasn't a tax collector, but he meets Jesus. And his first thought is, I got to invite somebody else to come meet Jesus. And so in John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip goes and he finds his friend Nathaniel. It says, he found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him talking about Jesus of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And I love Nathanael's response. He doesn't go, yes, awesome. The Messiah is here. Great, I'm in. What does Nathanael say? Verse 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's like, really? Nazareth, this guy? Now, he's not just skeptical about a town. This actually shows us that Nathaniel knows his Bible prophecy maybe a little bit because Nazareth is not the town the Savior was supposed to come from. The Savior is supposed to come from Bethlehem. Now, Nathaniel just didn't know the whole story, right? God had arranged things through tax collection and Jesus, his parents had traveled to Bethlehem and he was born there, but then raised in Nazareth. And so Nathaniel's skeptical. He's like, I... I'm not just going to take it at face value that this guy is the Savior. I don't know if I really believe that. And I definitely don't know if I believe that a guy from Nazareth could really be Savior. I mean, kind of a sketchy town. And I don't even know if that's really what the Bible says, where the Messiah is going to come from. He's skeptical. Now, I just have to say, you know, we might be sitting here going like, well, I'm not questioning just because Jesus came from Nazareth. He's not the Messiah. No, but you know what? I bet there's a lot of skeptics in our country that are looking at the American church And they're skeptical. Can anything good come out of that? Can anything good come out of that place with those judgmental people or those hypocrites who are living lives that don't reflect what they teach? See, we actually live in a society that is skeptical of Jesus. And I think one of the biggest reasons why is us. But look at Philip's response. Does he try to talk him out of it? Does he, does he pull together his Bible apologetics and Nathaniel, I'm just going to prove to you how Jesus is the Messiah. What does he say? Come and see. Come and see. If we would just live our lives in such a way, instead of trying to argue and fight with every skeptic out there, if we could live life in such a way that they were just invited to come and see. But you know what that requires? That requires being real. It requires being genuine. It requires putting your life out there a little bit. People are going to see me fall short. You know what? That's okay. That highlights the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus, not the gospel of Jake having his life all together. I don't. And I won't. I stumble. I fail. I fall. But if I'm willing to engage a skeptical world, and I don't even just mean skeptic writ large. I mean people you know that are skeptical. Who's the Nathaniel in your life? Or maybe you're sitting here this morning going, hold on, dude, like I'm the Nathaniel right now. I'm a little skeptical. Great, come and see. Come be around Jesus. Let's just see who this Jesus is like, what he has to say, and what the people who hang around him start to look like. Come and see. And so, man, my heart for us again as a church is that we would be the kind of church that could be a come and see people. Real people live in regular, authentic lives and that we are hanging around Jesus and we're inviting other people to come and see him. That's the invitation that Philip gives. Now check this out. The story continues. Verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said to him, Behold, 
an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. He sees Nathaniel coming and he's like, I like this guy. I like this guy. This guy's not fallen for anything, right? An Israelite in whom there's no deceit. He's not only saying Nathaniel's like a real dude. He's saying this bro's not just going to fall for anything. Now this contrasts what a lot of people in our culture think about Jesus. They think Jesus is for weak-minded people who are really needy and I guess he can help them out. But real intelligent thinkers who are critical and will wrestle with the truth like that, that Jesus isn't really for them. Can I just tell you, Jesus loves skeptics and he made a place in his life for them. First of all, I see him over and over and over again engaging with the most skeptical people of all, the Pharisees. He didn't just stop talking to them. He continued to engage them. He'd wrestle through with them. He lived his life in front of them and he would talk. And we know from scripture there were at least a few that eventually came to him. We're going to look at one in a minute. But not only that, within his own group of followers, he had skeptics. I mean, what in the world do you think Peter was? That guy was constantly back and forth. I believe, I don't believe, I'm struggling, I don't know. We've got Nathaniel here who eventually follows Jesus. We also have a guy named Thomas. Anybody know what we refer to Thomas as? Doubting Thomas. You guys all knew that, right? He only had, let me think about this, 12 disciples. And by my count right there, pretty easily I can put Peter, Nathaniel, and Thomas in that. Like 25% of his followers were skeptical dudes. Jesus welcomes people that wrestle with the truth. And he doesn't push them away. And he doesn't just say, oh, stop it, just believe. He just says, come and see. Come spend time with me. Come, come check out who I am and what I have to say. And just see if you aren't convinced by the life I live by the hope I bring, by the truth that I'll declare. Come and see. And so he welcomes and even admires people who wrestle. Verse 48, Nathanael looks at him and he's like, hold on a minute, like you're talking like you know who I am here. And so he says to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He's like in shock now. Wait a minute, this Jesus character, he knows stuff. He sees things. He sees into my own life. This is unbelievable. And what's funny is Nathaniel so quickly jumps from skeptic to believer, Jesus almost slows him down. Jesus says to him in verse 50, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? you will see greater things than these. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now here's what I love about this. Jesus is so personal that he could speak to a guy like Nathaniel and, and recognize what questions Nathaniel needed answered. He knew how to meet Nathaniel where he was and talk with him and communicate him and meet with him right there. And for many of us in this room, like, whether we're followers or not yet, or we're not sure where we stand, if you're anything like me, you've still got stuff you're wrestling with. You still have questions that you're going, God, what are you doing with that? What is that about? And I just have to tell you, Jesus loves you enough to come close and get personal and answer those questions that you struggle with. But I also have to tell you that Jesus not only has answers to your specific personal question, he has all the answers to all the questions 
And he's saying, Nathaniel, things you haven't even thought to ask about yet. Stuff you're going to face 10 years from now that you don't even know are going to be an obstacle in your life. I've got those answers too. I am not just a guy who has certain answers at certain times. I have all the answers all the time. And if you'll engage with me and walk with me, I will answer your heart's questions. You are invited to come and see. And so we have the sinner and we have the skeptic. And then finally, Jesus even came for saints. This guy named Nicodemus. He's one of these Pharisees. He's one of these Sadducees. He's one of the guys in the category that were um, the religious leaders of the day that had a lot of problems with Jesus. And Nicodemus, I guess, starts to watch his life and he's curious about him and um, he's a little nervous too. But he wants to ask Jesus some questions. He wants to meet him. He wants to figure out what's, who is this Jesus guy? What is he all about? And so by all accounts, here's Nicodemus, a good guy, um, a religious leader. That would indicate his life was in order. He was doing the right thing. Um, to be a religious leader of the day, you had to be a pretty smart guy. These, these guys that were leaders of the day, they had what we would call the Old Testament, the, the original Old Testament scriptures. They had them memorized. Memorized. Have any, has anybody ever tried to memorize just like five or six verses? I mean, I'm like, I get through like five or six verses, I'm already struggling. These guys had the entire book memorized. They knew this stuff inside and out. This is an intelligent guy. This is a guy whose life was in order. And in fact, based on some other evidence we see in Scripture, he was also probably a pretty successful guy. His finances were in order. Um, so here's Nicodemus, successful, intelligent, well put together. His life is in order. This isn't a guy who was an outcast. He's admired. This isn't a guy that people would label as a skeptic. He's an insider. He's telling other people about God. And yet there's something about Jesus that he sees something in Jesus that's just different than what his life experience has been. And so he's nervous to approach Jesus in front of all the other religious leaders. Maybe he's worried what they'll think. Maybe he'll get rejected. And so in John chapter 3, he shows up to Jesus at night. And so here we go. John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he's kind of putting this feeler out like, I mean, we kind of, we kind of know you're from God. Like there's some signs that you're doing. But there's almost like a question mark at the end of that statement. Like, I'm kind of here to check you out. You seem like you're from God. What are you really about? I'm kind of here to talk to you and find this out. And in verse 3, Jesus answered him and said, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, isn't this interesting? This saint was drawn to Jesus. This guy whose life was in order is drawn to Jesus. He's in a place of leadership. He's an intelligent guy. His finances are in order. His life is in order. And he comes to Jesus and he says, basically, who are you? Jesus doesn't answer that question. In fact, he actually, it's almost like he took a mirror and deflected it back to Nicodemus. And he said, he said, hey, man, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But when I think of being born again, 
I think of a sinner whose life is a total mess, who's lost as can be, that needs a radical transformation in their life. And so they come and they meet Jesus and they're born again. And it's like their life changes completely. Jesus did not use the statement, you must be born again, when he met the woman that was caught in adultery. He didn't even use that statement when he met Levi earlier or when he met Nathaniel. Who is he telling that you need a total life transformation? The saint, the very guy who from everything on the outside, his life is together and in order. Jesus goes right to the heart of the issue and he says, listen, you need a radical life change. You need to be born again. Something in you has to change. And Nicodemus's response is amazing. He doesn't say, ah, oh, get out of here. He doesn't say, no way, I reject that or storm off angry. Look at verse four. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? His question isn't about whether or not he needs to be born again. He's saying, is this even possible? I don't even understand. See, a saint, a real saint, a true saint actually understands something about themselves. I'm not really a saint. That's what a real saint understands. And see, for Nicodemus and all his learning and all his trying to do the right thing and all the years of being an intellectual, faithful, religious bro, at the end of the day, he still recognized something is missing. Something is missing. And he doesn't understand it because his life, especially in contrast to society, was fine. And yet he comes to Jesus and he's like, man, who are you? What's going on with you? And Jesus said, let me tell you something about me. I'm the kind of guy that's going to come and help you right where you are. You need something radical. You need to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, man, I don't even know what that would look like. I don't even know how that would work. I don't understand. We're not going to spend the rest of the time this morning looking at the whole passage, but we're going to look at a little bit of it. And so in verse five, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. He's like, look, bro, you've been born. You had a mom. You're alive. Your flesh is alive. You're walking around on this earth. But you are more than that. You are more than that. There is spirit within you that needs new life. And that's what I have to offer. I have to offer a change that will change you at your very core, in your very spirit. And I think it's interesting that Jesus talks about water and spirit here because those are two reflections of what Jesus comes to do in the life of every person that wants to follow him. Water baptism is a picture of being dead to an old way of life. That's, that's why we submerge people dead to an old way of life and risen to new life. The water itself doesn't wash away the sin, but it reflects what Jesus has done in your heart. He lets you die to an old way of living and be born again into a brand new life of living with him. And then he goes on to say, you also need to be born of spirit. And the radical thing that Jesus did that changed the entire course of human history is he allowed for God's spirit to be poured out on all flesh. Every single person on this planet now can have the Spirit of God come live within them. That's what happened when Jesus ascended back to heaven. 
And so he's already talking to Nicodemus about something he's going to do later when he dies and is risen again. You need to be born again. You need to experience newness of life. You'll be washed in the water and filled with the Spirit and you'll have brand new life. And you, Nicodemus, the saint, you need that. And then he goes through the rest of the passage and listen, some of the most famous verses that we know are found here in John chapter 3. Anybody know John 3, 16? We could probably all quote it together really easily. Everybody knows it. He says that to Nicodemus. God loves us so much he sent his son to die for us. Verse 17 goes on to say, Jesus didn't come to condemn everybody. He came to save everybody. And he wraps up this whole passage after he talks to Nicodemus about, Nicodemus, you just, you put your faith and you trust me. And it's kind of like the wind. You can't necessarily see the effects of what's happening in your life. You don't see it outwardly, but you recognize that wind does move things. It changes things. And that's what I'll come and do in your life. I'll come in places you can't even see and change you. And then he wraps it all up by talking to him about dark and light. Now think about this. Nicodemus the saint has shown up at night in order to hide the fact that he's coming to talk to Jesus. And Jesus finishes his conversation by saying, people prefer the dark. They prefer to hide. But I come to give light. You know what happens with this bro Nicodemus? See, the story doesn't end right here with this conversation. In John chapter 19, after Jesus has died on the cross, and a, and a wide range of things have happened, a lot has taken place. One of the things that has happened is all of his disciples have run and hid. Every one of them. They were terrified. Peter even tried to follow for a while, and then he got scared off. Every one of his disciples ran. They're afraid. They're worried about what's going to happen to them. Now they're realizing because the Pharisees just had Jesus killed, this isn't even about being rejected anymore. This is about your life ending. If we're really going to follow Jesus, it might cost us our very lives. And on the night that Jesus was killed, Nicodemus shows up in John chapter 19, verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Of all the followers of Jesus, the one who it would cost the most to be associated with Jesus, Nicodemus shows up and says, I'll take his body. I'll take his body. And at great cost to me, it, would, it was an extreme cost to show up with 75 pounds of this myrrh and this aloe and the stuff that was going to be used to prepare Jesus' body. And so the guy that had come kind of secretly and quietly at night in Jesus' early ministry, he's now standing up when it would cost him the most to say, I'm with him. And what I love about this is while Nicodemus is providing what's needed to care for Jesus' dead body and burial, at the very same time, Jesus is taking care of what is needed for Nicodemus to be born again. And so Jesus is buried in the grave, and three days later, he rises again. And it's not recorded in Scripture, but there's some history outside of Scripture that records that Peter baptized Nicodemus. 
and that Nicodemus was a faithful follower of Jesus the rest of his life. Baptized in water, filled with the Spirit of God, walking in newness of life. Jesus came for sinners, for skeptics, and for saints. And these aren't just people on the fringes. Every person we've talked about this morning, they were a disciple of Jesus Christ. See, the third thing that we're going to talk about in the series that we're going to start in a couple weeks, it's about being a disciple. And every single person is invited to be a disciple. Jesus made us for that. And so we, as a body, are invited to come as we are, as real people, to come and see and check Jesus out. We get to decide, am I going to come sinner that I am? Am I going to come with, with all of the things I'm still skeptical and unsure about? In fact, am I even willing to come as a person whose life is kind of in order and still recognize I need Jesus to save me? I need rescued all the time by him. Will I come as I am and be a disciple of Jesus? And then will I be the kind of person that invites sinners and skeptics and saints into my life to come and see Jesus? That's the opportunity that's in front of us. As a church, my, my heart is that we would live life this way, that we would, we would surround ourselves with the people in these categories, that I wouldn't take it for granted that saints know Jesus. I've got a couple of buddies that we've joked for years, like, I wish all of the Christians would get saved. And it's kind of tongue in cheek, but, but that we just take for granted so often that people just raise their hand and say, well, I'm an American and I'm a Christian. Let's not assume Let's believe that we're surrounded by saints that need Jesus. Let's believe that we're surrounded by skeptics who are wrestling with real issues that we can't just, oh, stop worrying about that, or oh, just get over it and believe. Would we be willing to, to wrestle through some things with skeptics and invite them to come meet Jesus? And we look at people in our life that would be easy to push off to the, the side and be outcasts, and instead, would we invite them in? That's what's in front of us today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. God, we thank you for your incredible heart. God, the truth is at some point in my life, I'm all three of these people. God, I'm a sinner, I'm a skeptic, I'm a saint. God, I struggle and, and wrestle, I blow it. God, there's times where my life even looks in order, but I still know, God, I need you. Jesus, thank you that you love me, that you've saved me, that you came for me. God, I thank you for every one of my friends here this morning. God, that you say we're qualified. Outcast though we may be, you invite us. Skeptic though we may be, you say come and see. Saint who has it all together, you tell us the truth and say you must be born again. Jesus, thank you for the love and the truth that you communicate. Now, God, would you help us to be a people that associate with, that invite, that involve in our lives sinners, skeptics, and saints. We need your grace and help to do that. May we, we be a church that is marked by that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.